Section 3 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 3, From the Accession of Nicholas II Until the Present Day, by Shimon Dubnov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by S.S. Kim, Manikt Baisho, Portugal. Chapter 31, The Accession of Nicholas II, Part 3. 6. Anti-Semitic Propaganda and Pogroms The reactionary Russian press, encouraged and stimulated by the official Jew baiters, engaged in an increasingly ferocious campaign against the Jews. The Russian censorship, known all over for its merciless cruelty, which was throttling the printed word and trembling at the criminal thought of inciting hatred toward the government, yet granted untrammeled freedom to those who propagated hatred to Judaism and thereby committed the equally criminal offense of inciting one part of the population against the other. The Novoe Vremia, the most widespread semi-official press organ, and its satellites in the provincial capitals were permitted to do what they pleased. They were free to slander the Jewish religion, the Jewish people, and the Jewish communities. When the famous Dreyfus affair had started in France, the noble Bremia, the oracle of Russia's ruling spheres, arrayed itself on the side of the Jew baiters from among the French general staff and launched a savage campaign of slander against the Jews of the entire globe. Many an article published in the anti-Semitic press was scarcely distinguishable from the proclamations calling upon the mob to massacre the Jews. By far, the most effective propaganda on behalf of pogrom was carried on, sometimes without a conscious realization of the consequences by the government itself, by persisting in its anti-Jewish policy. Observing this uninterrupted maltreatment of the Jews, on the part of the Russian legislation and administration, which treated the Jews as if they were criminals, witnessing the expulsions inflicted upon the illegally residing Jews and the raids engineered against them, watching the constant mockery at the Jewish children who were driven from the doors of the educational institutions, and seeing the endless multitude of other humiliating disabilities the unenlightened Russian populace necessarily gained the conviction that the extermination of Jewry was a noble and patriotic duty. Coupled with the usual economic and national conflicts, these trends of mind could not but lead to acts of violence. At the end of the 90s, the Russian horizon was darkened again by the ominous shadow of the beginning of the 80s. Pogroms at first sporadic and within circumscribed limits, broke out again in various parts of the Pale. On February 18th and 19th, 1897, an anti-Jewish riot took place in Shpola, a town in the government of Kiev. The following officially inspired account of the excesses, in which the facts were undoubtedly toned down, appeared in the Novoye Vremia. At three o'clock in the afternoon, an immense crowd of peasants rushed into our town and wrecked 
completely the stores, homes, and warehouses belonging exclusively to the Jews. A large number of rich business places and small stores, as well as hundreds of houses, were demolished by the crowd, which acted, one might say, with elemental passion, dooming to destruction everything that fell into its hands. The town of Shpola, which is celebrated for its flourishing trade and its comparative prosperity, now presents the picture of a city which has been ravaged by a hostile army. Lines of old women and children may be seen moving into the town to carry home with them the property of the Zs. Of essential importance is the fact that these disorders were undoubtedly prearranged. The local Jews knew of the impending disaster four days before it took place. They spoke about it to the local police chief, but the latter assured them that nothing is going to happen. Two months later, on April 16 and 17, the Christian inhabitants of the town of Kantankutsenka in the government of Kherson indulged in a similar amusement at the expense of the Jews. To quote the word of a semi-official report, a cruel pogrom has taken place. Almost the entire town has been destroyed by an infuriated mob. All Jewish stores were wrecked and the goods found there were thrown about. A part of the merchandise was looted by the rebel. The synagogue alone remained unscathed. Here too, it was known beforehand that a pogrom was in the course of preparation. The Jews petitioned the authorities to avert the catastrophe, but the local police force was found inadequate to cope with the situation. In both devastated towns, the governors of the respective provinces eventually appeared on the scene with detachment of troops. But in the meantime, the revolting performances were over. Many rioters were placed under arrest and put on trial. More than 60 were sentenced by the court to a term in prison from 8 to 14 months. One of the defendants, a little Russian peasant, who had been arrested for having taken part in an anti-Jewish riot, voiced his amazement in these characteristic words. They told us we had permission to beat the Jews, and now it appears that it is all a lie. A pogrom on more comprehensive scale arranged in honor of the Easter festival and lasting for three days, April 19 to 21, 1899, was allowed to take place in the city of Nikolaev, the South Russian port of entry. Bands of rioters, to the number of several thousands, among them many newly arrived great Russian day laborers and a few intellectual ringleaders, fell upon Jewish stores and residences and destroyed or looted their contents, complying faithfully with the established pogrom ritual, while the police and Cossack forces proved powerless. On the third day, when the news of the freedom accorded to the rioters and robbers at Nikolaev reached the villages in the vicinity, a whole army of peasants, both men and women, numbering some 10,000, started towards the city on their wagons with the intention of carrying off the property of the Jews, but they were too late. For in the meantime, 
Cossacks and soldiers had been ordered to stop the pogroms and disperse the rioters. The peasants were driven off and had to return to their villages on their empty wagons. Exasperated by their failure, the peasants vented their fury upon the Jewish cemetery outside the city, demolishing a large number of tombstones and then scattering all over the district, made an attack upon the Jewish population in the neighboring settlements and villages. In the Jewish agricultural colony of Nagavata, all farmhouses and stores were wrecked and looted and the agricultural implements demolished. The Russian peasant was unscrupulously ruining and robbing his Jewish fellow peasant. In the adjacent colonies, the Jews, being of a robust physique, were able to put up an effective defense. The only protest against this new outbreak of barbarism was voiced by the son of the fatherland, Sin Otechestva, a liberal Russian press organ. When at last questioned the paper, will that terrible relic of the gloomy era of the Middle Ages take an end? When will there be a stop to this breaking of windows, this beating of men, and this wrecking of houses and stores? This time, the orders from St. Petersburg were explicit. The local authorities were commanded to prevent the further spread of pogrom agitation. The reasons for this unaccustomed attitude is not difficult to guess. Two weeks after the Nikolaev atrocities, the first International Hague Conference opened its sessions, May 6 to 18, having been called at the initiative of the Russian Emperor to discuss the question of disarmament, and this conference must have suggested to the Tsar the advisability of first disarming the anti-Jewish rioters in Russia itself. However, he failed to draw the more important conclusion from the conference called by him that it was necessary to stop or at least to reduce the constant arming of his own government against the Jews and to discard the medieval weapons of oppression and persecution, which spelled destruction to an entire nation. This alone is enough to expose the hollowness of the spectacles at Hague which had been designed by the feeble-minded Nicholas as a sort of diplomatic entertainment. That the Russian authorities, when so minded, were fully capable of grappling with the pogrom agitation was demonstrated by the rapidity with which, on a later occasion, they suppressed the anti-Jewish excesses in the Polish city of Częstochow, August 19, 1902. In this hotbed of dismal Polish clericalism, the goal of thousands of Catholic pilgrims, who arrived there to worship the Holy Virgin on the Bright Mountain, a street brawl between a Jewish tradesman and the Polish woman grew, owing to the instigations of Catholic priests, into a monstrous assault upon Jewish houses and stores by a crowd of 15,000 Poles. Here, too, the customary shouts were heard, Beat the Jews, nothing will happen to us. But the Chenstokov rioters made a grievous error in their calculations. The protection of the Russian authorities did not extend to the Poles, who were not considered politically dependable and were known to be equally hostile to the Zids and the Moscars. The excesses had started in the morning 
and in the evening they were at an end, a volley from the soldiers having put the tremendous crowd to flight. When the case came up before the courts, the public prosecutor pleaded for the severe punishment of the culprits. The guilty Poles were sentenced to penal servitude and to terms in prison, and in some cases even damages were awarded to the Jewish victims, an extraordinary rare occurrence in legal proceedings of this kind. The union of Polish anti-Semitism with Russian Judeophobia brought again to life the old monstrous accusation against the Jews, the ritual murder libel. A Polish servant girl in the employ of David Blondis, a Jewish barber in Vilna, steeped as she was in gross superstition and being a pliant tool in the hands of fanatical priests, ran out one night, March 1900, into the street, shouting that her master had wounded her and had tried to squeeze blood from her for the matzah. A crowd of Christians quickly assembled, and seeing the scratches on the neck and hands of the girl, fell upon Blondis and gave him a severe beating. The criminal was thrown into prison, and the prosecuting authorities, listening to the voice of the people, were zealous in their search for the threats of the crime. The anti-Semitic press launched a well-planned campaign against the Jews in the hope of influencing the judicial verdict. The lower court recognized the fact of the assault, but denied the presence of any murderous intent, and leaving aside the possibility of a ritual motive, sentenced Blondis to imprisonment for four months. The counsel for the defense, the well-known lawyer Grutzenberg and others, fearing lest this sentence might be construed by the enemies of Judaism as a corroboration of the ritual murder libel, appealed from the verdict of the court and proved victorious. A decision handed down by the Senate ordered the case to be sent back for a second trial to the district court of Vilna, and the court of jurymen, after listening to the statements of authoritative experts and the brilliant speeches of the defense, rendered the verdict of not guilty, February 1, 1902. The prisoner was set at liberty, and the nightmare of the ritual murder Dreyfusiet was dispelled for the time being. Even the Russian stage was made subservient to the purposes of Jew baiting. A converted Jew by the name of Ephron Litvin, who had joined the anti-Semitic business form of Novia Vremia, wrote a libellous play under the title The Sons of Israel, or The Smugglers, in which Jews and Judaism were made the subject of the most horrible calumnies. The play was first produced at St. Petersburg in the theater controlled by Suvorin, the publisher of the Novoe Vremia, and in the course of 1901-1902 it made the rounds of the provincial stage. Everywhere the Russian Jew haters welcomed this talentless production, which pictured the Jews as rogues and criminals, and represented the Jewish religion and morality as the fountainhead whence the supposed hatred of the Jews against the Christian derived its origin. Naturally enough, the Jews and the best elements among the Russian intelligentsia looked upon the mere staging of such play as an incitement to pogroms. They appealed repeatedly to the police 
calling upon them to stop the production of a play which was sure to fan national and religious hatred. The police, however, were not guided by the wishes of the Jews, but by those of their enemies. As a result, in a considerable number of cities where the play was presented, such as Smolensk, Oriol, Kishnev, Tiflis, and others, violent demonstrations took place in the theaters. The Jewish spectators and the part of the Russian public, particularly from among the college youth, hissed and hooted, demanding the removal from the stage of this libel on a whole people. The anti-Semites, in turn, shouted, downed the Jews, and started a fight with the demonstrators. The police, of course, sided with the anti-Semites, attacking the demonstrators and dragging them to the police stations. This agitation led to a number of legal proceedings against the Jews who were charged with disturbing the peace. During the trial of one of these cases in the city of Oriol, the counsel for the defense used the following argument. The play inflames the national passions and makes the national traits of a people the object of ridicule and mockery. Of a people, moreover, which is denied equal rights and has no means of voicing its protest. The production of such plays should never have been permitted, the more so as the police were well acquainted with the agitated state of the public mind. The argument of the defending attorney was scarcely convincing, for the articles of the Russian law, which forbids the incitement of one part of the population against the other, loses its validity when the other part means the Jews. End of section 3